We all have moments where we feel insecure. Without awareness, those moments of insecurity shape so much of our lives. Hi, I'm Chris McAllister, and I founded SightShift to help people like you and me, leaders and coaches, use the moments they feel insecure to transform their identity, their teams, and their culture. Listen in as I interview people around what it means to be the kind of leader who uses these moments to transform themselves. Welcome to the SciShift Podcast. So fun for me to introduce everyone to folks that I'm inspired by in different places, journeys, and uh, really fun today. I've watched this guy go through multiple evolutions and showing up an artist of impact. Eric, so glad to have you here on the show today, man. Thanks for having me, Chris. Good to be back on your show. How's it going? Yeah, yeah that's right, man. Uh, so for context for listeners, this show is usually just done by me, but I put something out there. I think this would have probably been in like 2016, uh, maybe 2015, somewhere in there where I was willing to coach someone if they would be coached on air through the podcast. And my man, Eric staffed up and said, yeah, so you've been the most frequent repeat guest. Actually, now that's what's hitting my brain than more than anybody else on the podcast. So yeah, this is like, years. yeah, you've done a few things since then. When we first connected, you were really taking off with an art career that I think was just so fantastic. Can we talk about openly about the company you're with and some of that stuff? Sure. Yeah, it's part of my story. Right uh, on. Take us back there and give us some of the high watermarks and then we'll get into some of the nuance. So back when we first connected, it was, you said 2016, 2017. So a time when I thought that I was going to be going full-time freelance and going after my dream of being a business owner after leaving a job and traveling for a little while and then coming back home. But the reality, different in mind for me, some opportunities that landed in my lap and felt like it was just the right move. So after only a few months of going for that full-time freelance dream, I accepted an opportunity at WeWork when they were kind of about to go into their hyper-growth phase back in 2017. And I'm really glad I accepted that gig because it allowed me to do a lot of what I love, some really interesting people, to travel and leave my art kind of all over the world and develop a lot of skills that I would bring into my business after leaving WeWork. So I was there for about three and a half years running and building their art and graphics team. So that's all the art on the walls, all the wallpapers, the murals, the neon signs, the things that make a co-working space like WeWork really homey. Mm. And uh, it was a really specialist kind of job but I learned so much about art because I, I was a graphic design major at first and getting more into fine art over the last 10 years. Like that was a big time when I was just surrounded by all these different types of artists and thinkers who could bring their own special philosophy to the walls of that company. That's like a little bit of background on that time. But the whole time I was building my dream on the side and kind of using the leverage of my day job to fuel my dream job and eventually made the leap in uh, late 2019. I left WeWork, flash forward, Stop me from going too fast. Did you have any questions on that time? Or? I think to help people really appreciate it. I mean, I remember us talking during that time when you're doing those art installations and it's like, man, you're like at the NFL level of doing these art installations. This is like huge in these wild locations. And I think for you, there was a humility that you had about yourself in a beautiful way, but that also sometimes like really learning to grow and develop that confidence. Because I think people could be listening and think, man, this guy's just had no struggle like taking 
the leaps and believing in himself. Yeah, I wasn't sure if I was going to take that opportunity or not because I wanted to do my own thing for so long or it felt like so long of, of me working at other jobs so that I could manage my time the way I wanted to and make call the shots a little more in terms of what projects I was doing. I think I struggle with deciding a lot of what's the next opportunity to go for and is it worth it because we only have this limited time on this planet. You know my whole story of, of almost losing my life and all, losing everything I own. So I, I really don't take every day for any day for granted getting to do what I love. And so choosing where to put that energy and who to work with is really hard for me still to this day. And, you know, I'd love to say that I have all the clarity in the world of, of like what got me here, but it's a lot of just circumstantially like figuring it out and weighing the pros and cons of which way I can go next. And I don't look too far ahead or too far behind. I'm really just navigating like a few steps in front of me. You know, I definitely I had, I, I've lost a lot of work that I thought I was going to have too. So during the pandemic is a good example. Like right after leaving WeWork, I had a lot of things lined up, but then a lot of them disappeared. And I had to really change my business to something that could get me through that time when businesses weren't opening and events weren't happening and murals, murals weren't going up, which was my main bread and butter mm -hmm. at the time. So I've had to adapt a lot to be able to do what I do. And then that's yeah. not easy because like leaving, leaving things behind that you love just because it's not making business sense is really hard still. Yeah. If for me, I remember that like we had talked right when you were kind of wrestling with that idea about leaving WeWork and then boom, you're doing these murals and then boom, all that shuts down so quick. And here you are adapting. And I want to get into some of the exciting things I've seen you adapt into, but it is hard to leave some of those things behind. Does anything specifically come to mind that was hard to leave back there? I think I still try to hold on to them in some small way. I won't leave my passions behind. I just won't be able to work on them as much as I would love to, because maybe at one point the passion is, is more easy to monetize or there's a market for it. And then at another point, the circumstances change and people want to hire me for other types of work. But I still find ways to do the things that I love on the side. I think murals is a big one where I'm only doing a few every year now on average. And before it was like one every two weeks, like it was a lot. It was in double digits every year. And I kind of took on that identity of I'm a traveling mural artist. It's what I want to do. And I had to let that part of my identity go in some way because it wasn't the mm -hmm. thing that was my bread and butter during the mm -hmm. pandemic. Way, way to word that so beautifully and to be adaptive like that. From there, I saw a real takeoff into the NFT space. And I remember just commenting a couple things, just celebrating how I was seeing this take off. Of course, then that changed, right? You were like at the front end of a lot of that. Has that cooled off? Has it shifted direction? What's happening there? I think that there's an intermediary chapter that you kind of breezed over, which is part of what enables me to keep going in the NFT space and in the sort of limited edition art space, mm -hmm. whether it's physical or digital. And that's the baseball card project. That was really the thing that I held on to during that, those couple of years, 2020, 2021, that paid my bills for the most part. I leaned as far as I could really, sometimes too much, into that project and making more and more things for that audience beyond what, what I was asked to do. But the, just for a little bit of background, the project was a series of trading cards designed for tops you know, the 70 year old manufacturer of baseball cards. And they asked 20 different artists to create 20 rookie cards in their style. So go back to the archives and remix the greats into new designs that were some kind of hybrid between fine art and collectibles that hadn't really been done before. Mm. And when sports shut down, it was really awesome to see the energy around this project because 
there was no, there was no live sports. The artists became the athletes for a lot of these people to follow along and keep the stats of like how the art was doing and selling because they, they kind of had a special dynamic of how they got the cards out there in the world. That was a really great project to be a part of during those years when everyone was digging up their old boxes in their closets and their attics and finding the things that they used to love. But that project got me a collector base. And it yeah. wasn't my collector base in the beginning. It was Topps' collector base. But they were selling my work for me, distributing it. And then eventually, you know, it compounds when you do 20 different cards and then another year of 20 cards and a spinoff project and all these little projects that I kind of spun off of the baseball cards. Um, so and, in, cool. and in the end, they're baseball cards. It's not my main passion. It is something I used to love when I was a kid something I still have a fondness for today. I haven't been to a baseball game in a little while. I went to a few in the last couple of years, but before that, it had been like a decade since going to a baseball game. It's really more something from my childhood. And I think there was a point where I realized I was going too far into that niche where I had alienated a lot of people who didn't really like baseball-related content mm. with my content. And not everybody likes that sport. I get that. And not everybody likes sports in general. Mm. And you're talking to a, like a part-time slash amateur skateboarder. The team sports haven't been my thing for a very long time. So the transition to that, I think I almost didn't realize like what it did to my business was it was pigeonholing me a little bit. So the last year or so, I have been leaning more into abstract art, fine art, and that's digital and physical, using okay. NFTs as like a tool in the arsenal to add value to what I'm doing and to sometimes distribute it faster. So um, exciting. Yeah. So I can share a little more about the transition, but really the trading cards was what gave me the collector base to eventually bring into the NFT space with me. And I'm still doing a lot of physical and digital projects for that expanded audience, you know, beyond the baseball cards, mm -hmm. beyond, but that's really where I got my first hundred collectors from. Wow. Yeah. That, yeah, makes sense of the timeline. Because in my mind, the baseball cards were the bigger thing still. And so, no, actually, there's been a shift there. And what a cool thing. Because I remember seeing that happen. And I collected Topps cards with my brother as a little kid. And I was like, this is awesome, man. He's he's like now connected to this brand. What a powerful win for you. But what an intuitive insight that you didn't want to be pigeonholed into that. And so what was the thing for you that kind of woke you up to go, whoa, this is going to keep me from where I want to go? Or, or what was the action you had to take? I think the schedule of releases that they were doing, it was pretty fast paced. So every two weeks, another card was coming out with a new player and a new story to tell and a limited time window that you could get it. So it was a mad rush to see how many people can I get to go to this page to share the story of this athlete slash celebrity. Sometimes they were bigger off the field than they were on the field. And I, I love telling that story. And then they would repeat it every two weeks, make a new piece, send it to Tops for approval. And it was just this cycle of every two weeks taking up a lot of time for that project. And then in between, in you know the off weeks, I would try to create something that could go alongside the cards, or maybe I was autographing some of the cards to, to sell to some of my bigger collectors. And you know, I just kept stacking things on top of that. Then I was designing these sort of blob character versions of, the, of the, the baseball players. And I did a whole set of those so that if someone was going to buy the autograph card, they could also get a companion card and a print. And with physical art distribution, it's just really cumbersome to do it right. Mm -hmm. It's just really hard. And you have to be incredibly careful, especially for these collectibles people who value the mint condition over everything. So not screwing that up. And then if you did screw it up, just backtracking a lot and trying to fix all the problems and put out the fires. I learned so much through that process, but it also taught me that some things aren't sustainable for me. 
You know, the mm. doing, you, you understand when you have an e-commerce business, you have to have an average order value that actually covers what you're doing. Mm-hmm. So I think the market went up and then it changed when people sort of stopped reselling them on eBay. So I quickly learned the difference between a, a collector and an investor slash flipper. Like I was seeing my work on eBay. Yeah. So it was, it was an interesting feeling to see it go up and down in value and to kind of understand the market dynamics that I took a lot of that, uh, you know, the mistakes I made into the NFT space where it's a little more permanent actually and harder to backtrack yeah. and fix mistakes. So, yeah. Wow. Dude, I feel like one of the greatest things for creatives that are listening to this or people that desire to be more so in their aspirations, they tend to either fall into a ditch where the business part of it causes them to lose their soul or they're staying true to the soul of their art, but they're not really thinking through it from a business standpoint. And just the way the language you're using, the descriptions the decisions you've made, you've really seemed to figure out at least, you know, for yourself in a really beautiful way, how to intuitively balance these. I know you're probably going to be a little bit hard on yourself and and notice things you would have done differently. What would you say to people that are in either extreme that you do that helps you appreciate both of them? The extremes of business person and artist? Yeah, like how to how to keep in the game, how to do the art, stay creative and think about it from a business standpoint. Yeah, I think the art of showing up online is an art. So the way that you present your work or yourself online and what content you're sharing, even if it's just an image of your drawing, like that goes into like it's all overlapped with the business side. So how frequently and if it's tied to a campaign versus just an artwork that's a gift for people to enjoy online. So I think I try to structure my time so that I do prioritize the making of the art because it's easy to get just off track and only doing the business side and selling old work, selling copies of work like as prints or, or whatever. And then I'm not pushing my art career forward. I'm pushing the business forward from a bottom line sense. And maybe new, more people are discovering my art, but I'm not evolving quickly enough. So I try to put art making time first. And then once I hit a stopping point, or if I have a deadline, I'll have to, to switch over to whatever I'm doing. Like, uh, let's say I, I announced something to be launched on my website, like a, a collection of new prints or, or original artwork, like a, a collection of new prints or, or original artwork, the digital sales. And I have to get that ready. Email newsletter, yeah. marketing campaign, like what is the, the pricing? That's like the hardest thing. How do you price your mm-hmm. art? Like yeah. it's a dark art. So it's like really <laughs> trying to figure out how do I make it feel like people are coming with me along on my journey as my artwork rises in value over time, slowly and sustainably. And it's a good deal. Like you don't want it to be sitting on the shelf for months. It should be something that people see, oh, there's a good opportunity to get it. So finding that balance is a continual struggle. So mm. it's not easy for any artist to do that. A lot of them get help with that from a gallery or from an agent. Mm-hmm. And I've worked with both. And so far I've like learned a lot from them and I try to just do it myself right now. Mm-hmm. I was working wow. with an I was working with an agent for a little while but decided to recently go back out on my own uh, for now and making those decisions is never easy. So I, I think it's about putting the making first, realizing that there's no perfect spot for you to to focus on with your business, but try to put stuff out there and get data because yeah. the only way I'm able to make decisions about how much to put out, when to put it out, how to price it, where to who to partner with is by trying things getting data from those trials and then assessing what worked, what didn't work and trying to lean into the stuff that worked. Oh yeah, man. Thank you. I mean, for me, there was a time period where a couple of years I've worked with a lot of creatives. A number of them now have 
flourishing businesses. And so our conversations like have changed much like I'm, I'm feeling sitting here. And what's wild to me, though, is it's the same. I mean, there's not a leader that I can think of that's even starting a business that is not connected to any kind of art, like we would say, I'll put in air quotes, but it, it is art for them, right? They're trying to bring a mission to bear in the world. And it's the same thing. It's like paying attention and looking at the data and trying to follow your intuition and figure out when you're supposed to zig when everybody's zagging. Really, really cool. What are you doing now or how are you thinking about the future in the NFT space if you think that, you know, there's a there's another chapter beyond where we're at now? How are you preparing for that future? Well, I think the if you have a business already, you're set up to at least look at the technology and see if it can improve any of your processes that you already use. So for me, archiving my work is mm -hmm. something that I do manually, photographing it if it's a physical piece, editing the photo, categorizing it, tagging it, making it easy to find in the future. And the blockchain is just another record that you could use for that, for example, and make mm -hmm. that public and make that transparent. But every business is different. And I think you have to have a business. <laughs> uh, NFTs on their own as a business, if that's all you're doing, selling yeah. NFTs attached to art or attached to an experience, let's say, an online experience only, like that's not really a business model. You're betting a lot on the technology being the thing that makes your business model sink or swim. And I think just having a re another business really to apply the technology to is the where it's going. It's like people are going to still continue to build businesses as they were with using the social media platforms, the web two, you know, functions of being able to get the word out about what you're doing. I think people are going to be less trusting of platforms that use algorithms and more about owning your content. So th I think the biggest revolution for me in my head is I own my content when it's minted as an NFT. Instagram can't just like shut down my account and get rid of all my content. Like I've put it in a place where it's permanent storage. I own it. Like I have yeah. the keys, basically. Yeah. I can change it. I can swap it out if I wanted to on any given token. But people trust me that I won't do that unless there's a purpose. Yeah. So it's it's really about empowering the artists and the people who see it as a building block to kind of implement it into their already existing businesses. Yeah. Wow. This has got me excited to ask you about this next question that I know, you know, people are going to have all kinds of takes on. And I really care about yours because you're in it and you're doing it and you make a living from it. And I know it's a new field, so you don't have to like feel like you got to speak to everything or have a perfectly thought out answer or whatever you feel comfortable sharing. What's it like for you now as you're processing what's happening with AI and art? What do you what do you say to people out there that are trying to figure out, you know, maybe maybe they have kids who are trying to figure out what they're going to do with their lives and how much they should dip their toes into things they want to express themselves in or people that are full on in the creative work and feeling scared. Yeah, I think the NFTs and AI conversation go hand in hand because they're both new technologies that are having rapid growth. And I did want to say one more thing about the future of NFTs yeah. before I get onto the AI because it's a whole different, they're both big rabbit hole discussions. What I'm seeing is the NFT as a community building tool is really powerful yeah. because there's this unspoken trust. If I sold or gave one of my NFTs to somebody and they go and resell it right away, that's like basically saying, I unfollowed you. I don't really want to be like in your circle. I just wanted the money if I can get it quickly. And when people don't sell the NFT, it's a sign of like, I want to be in your community. I want to be a holder of your work, a collector of your work. Maybe I have no plans to sell it. Maybe I'll sell it in a few years when I've rode with you for that time. That's powerful. And curating your community matters. Putting it out there to everybody, you're going to attract the opportunists, especially if it's a good deal. 
and they think that they can resell it quickly. That's a, what a lot of people are in this space for. But when you cut out that noise, there's actually a lot of really passionate builders, collectors, artists, thinkers that I'm just so inspired by every day. And I think that like getting my work into the right hands, getting your NFTs into the right hands really matters. Not going mm-hmm. after everyone, just like building a community always mattered who's in the community. And I think that it just becomes yeah. more important as time goes on, as people become more distrusting online because everything seems sketchy in this new world to the general public. It's about building trust with people. Okay. That's a so, great distinction. Thank you. Yeah. The AI conversation though is I'm still processing everything that's happening in terms of mm-hmm. how I feel about my own work. And because I've played with it, I've been trying to use it as a tool. I'm a believer that AI has been around for a, a lot longer than people realize. It's like in our cars, it's in Photoshop in the back end to do some of those tools, like where it just kind of fills space based on the pixels around whatever you're trying to fill. So there's AI tools being used, but it's just getting a lot more accessible and powerful. It is in some ways copying artists' work that they didn't give permission for it to copy. It's scraping the internet for images and writings and giving you answers, giving you outputs based on what's out there on the internet publicly. For the first time, you can say, I want to see this in that artist's style, and the AI will like give it its best shot. It doesn't work with contemporary artists. It's mainly with artists whose work is in the public domain, but some of, there are some exceptions. Infuriating to think about how we made a tool that took ad- that's taking advantage of, that has the potential to take advantage of so many artists who took decades to develop their technique, and now it's just being reduced to like a few words. And then people are saying like, I made this and they're not crediting that artist who they used in the prompt. That, that's really the, the infuriating part is when people don't have the ethics baked into their routine of sharing their work to say, this is how I made it. And I referenced this artist's work and this is not for sale because I copied that artist's work, et cetera. They're just selling it and not trying to make any new exciting art. And I think that there will be a period of overconsumption of that kind of art and then the cream will rise to the top. Artists are creating more work faster with these tools. And so the storytelling, the entertainment is get like the speed at which people are being able to entertain their fans with visual art, with new visual art every day is a breakneck speed that I'm not used to. Mm -hmm. And I've tried to develop a style of art where I can draw something fairly quickly. And it's an essence of something, at least a sketch that I'm happy to share as a part of my practice. Took a long time for me to develop a style where I could like do that and make make it quick, but make it meaningful. And I can't always do that. I can't just pull it out of my out of my hat. But like, um, uh, with AI, it seems like it's not that hard at all to do that. It's really easy to create a piece quickly. But I think it all comes down to who's using it. If they have a great idea, which is really the essence of art, more and more I'm realizing is the idea is the essence of art and the context at which the idea is presented to the world. Ooh, I love so, that distinction. Yeah, you, anyone, people will say like my cousin could draw that about something they see, but maybe the idea is the clever part of it. Mm. And it's about what came before, what came after, what's happening at that time that makes it poignant, that makes it art or makes it cut through the noise. So again, it's just about like the story that the artist can tell over a long period of time through multiple artworks. And that takes kind of a special mind regardless mm. of what tools they're using. So that it's easy to make bad art. I mean, it's easy to make quote unquote art. Yeah. But it's not easy to make great art. Yeah. 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 It's a cliche story, but I love it. You know, where I think it's Picasso does the quick painting and it's like, well, that didn't take you that long. And he's like, yeah, but it took me my life to be able to do that that quick. And I love the way that you said that, like uh, the way you're wrestling with this now is 
that the essence of it is the idea and the context around it, you know, is, is this art. And wow, it really speaks to the power of the creation, right? The the creator, the originator. Thank you, man. You've clearly thought about this and been wrestling with it. And I know there's not necessarily easy answers for some of these things. Uh, and we could talk about those alone for hours, but thanks for stepping into it with us. You know, one of the things that I'm drawn to is just how how people are really just overwhelmed, they're stressed, the life, the world around us has felt like a perma crisis the last few years, and you've clearly found a way to keep your sanity and create in the midst of it all. How would you encourage people to either create or consume art in these days of perma crisis where there's always some kind of bad news that could help them find the meaning that artists are putting out in the world? sounds simple, but just stopping what you're doing and creating something is probably the easiest way to do it, to just get over the hump, over the fear of it's not going to be good, or I don't have time. Like make it simple. What would it, what would it look like if it was easy and simple? Just a little drawing on a post-it note is pretty approachable. So finding a way to make it easy for you, one photograph a day at your lunch break, like, and then slowly getting the hang of, oh, I, I like these photos because this. Okay. Maybe I'll do a series of photos about this. Yeah. And then it's more intentional and it's, it's something that it's exciting, especially when you get feedback from people. I think just also surrounding yourself with other artists who take their work seriously, whether it's just following them online or going to an IRL event or listening to some YouTube or podcasts from people who are prolific creators it does rub off on you after a little bit of time listening to them and you feel like you're like they're in your ears. So it becomes a little easier to get over that hump if you're around people that all have gotten over that hump. And then I guess one last tip, Twitter. Twitter is actually where I'm really enjoying the art scene more and more. There's just a lot of talent over there that's harder to find on Instagram. Instagram's more about the trendiness and the TikTok mm -hmm. trends of like what's going viral. I think Twitter suggesting me artists is, has been really great. So if you follow a few artists you like, it'll probably suggest to you more. And then you can actually talk with them and then feel like they're replying because there's in this, we're kind of in this time of unprecedented access to artists where Twitter is where the whole NFT conversation is happening. A lot of contemporary artists have jumped on board. And part of that is their accessibility to their collectors on Twitter. Mm -hmm. that, that's a new thing. So, or just their fans in general, don't have to be collectors. People are more optimistic and trying to help each other because it feels possible that this revolution might improve things in terms of like the fine art world and creativity in general. Things feel more democratized. And I think Twitter is where the conversation is evolving. Yeah. Yeah. Tracks with what my experience is. I mean, there's places you can go, but nothing like Twitter for stepping into the slipstream of consciousness of people that rock my heart and mind. Uh, there are people that you can just see their ideas emerging and developing and, and, and so powerful. So, so cool to hear that happens in, in your domain also. You know, it, it's a number of years ago, like we've already stated, that we work together and you've been doing the work, paying attention to yourself. What, if anything, lingers in the biggest way from our time together? What do you find yourself returning back to that helps you the most, just as a way to encourage those listening that have also gone on the site shift journey? I think the mindfulness in general was something that we really worked on. And whenever feeling like there's intrusive thoughts in my process or I'm, I'm getting out of my flow, figuring out how to relax and get back into flow 
was there was a I forget the three stage <laughs> uh, mantras that you gave, but it was always just like getting back to and, and relaxing into flow. Yeah. That was something that really stuck with me. And it's really apparent in my art too that I value the flow state, just the visuals of what does flow look like comes out through my art naturally. So that's that really stuck with me. Dude, awesome. Man, I love hearing that. That's so powerful. What a great reminder for us all to get in the flow. And when we lose flow, it's like the seasons, which I know you resonated with that. You took the seasons message to the ConvertKit conference. Like, go you, bad to the bone, and help those artists make sense of and those creators, their seasons. And so I feel like your story just emulates this idea of, I don't have to get too far in the future, like you said. I don't have to look too far back. I'm trying to be where I am, pay attention and adjust. And it's a great model for us. Eric, I feel like this is going to expose people to your art in a beautiful way. Where would you like them to go if they wanted to know more about you? Uh, well, since we mentioned Twitter, you can find me there at f.studio. That's E-F-D-O-T studio. And on Instagram, it's just f.dot. And if you want to see more of my work, it's f.studio.com. And that's, those are the main places you can find me. Beautiful. Yeah. So I want to reveal something. I've been waiting till the end to do this and then we'll can peace oh. out on this. <laughs> uh, we have used something for years. Uh, we, we do have some stuff that we're releasing soon, but for years we've used a primary image to display and share this important message. Actually, for a number of years, we gave out leather keychains after people went through the coaching process on it. And it's the aware lean and flip flow with some beautiful symbology. And for those listening that are Sight Shift Hardcore fans, Aaron, Eric did that years ago. So props, man. Your art has been blessing us all in lots of ways. Man, thank you. And I realized that that's the thing that stuck with me as we were just talking about a minute ago. Aware, lean in, flip, and flow. So Dude. I, yeah, that's, I think through working on that project with you, it like just hammered home that process for me and it's helped me a lot. So I'm glad I got to do that with you guys. Man, baller. You just recorded, yeah. you just remembered the four words. That's awesome. Well, dude, such a privilege to have you. Thanks everybody for listening. You get here, you listen, you learn, you grow, you get better. Thanks, Eric. Cheers, Chris. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for being here. You know that self-leadership is difficult. And as you listened, if you found within yourself a desire for more awareness for yourself, your team, or your culture, or the people that you would guide as a coach, you can find more at SightShift.com. S-I-G-H-T shift.com to take the next step.